Good morning, everyone. We are following several major developing stories this morning. Here are the five things you need to know for your Monday, March 20th. Former President Donald Trump making an 11th hour push to avoid criminal charges. In the Stormy Daniels case, one of his allies will testify before a New York grand jury today in a bid to discredit the prosecution's star witness, that is Michael Cohen. And this all comes as Trump claimed that he will be arrested tomorrow, but the timing of any potential indictment remains unclear. Yeah, a lot more on that. And another roller coaster week for financial markets began as a major bank takeover is announced. Swiss regulators say that UBS is buying Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion. Global markets moving on the news this morning. Asian and European markets are down. Same with U.S. futures. Russian President Vladimir Putin playing host today to Chinese President Xi Jinping. A short time from now, the two leaders are set to meet in Moscow, a critical moment for Russia's war in Ukraine. It comes just days after the International Criminal Court issued war crimes arrest warrant, a war crimes arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. Also, a state of emergency has been declared in Miami Beach. Unruly spring break crowds and at least two shootings have led to a curfew. The city's mayor is calling the situation intolerable. Also today, Ted Lasso is headed to the White House. Jason Sudeikis and the rest of the cast will be there to promote the importance of mental health. CNN This Morning starts right now. It's interesting, Ted Lasso, you know, Jason Sudeikis, obviously, but better known as Ted Lasso now is going to the White House because this is actually a plot in the show. They talk about mental health, they talk about therapy, and now he's going to be doing it from the White House today. They said, see him from the podium. Don't uh, be surprised if you see, like, a guest appearance from the podium today. Look, believe it was right there. Welcome back, by the way, Poppy (laughs) Harlow. good to be here. I missed you on Friday. Glad you're back. Hope you had a good day off. And a lot happened over the weekend. did. I think Caitlin was on. We saved it all for you. Caitlin was on TV very early Saturday morning with some very big news that she broke. Let's begin with the latest legal moves playing out here in Manhattan. As a possible indictment looms over Donald Trump, the former president says he expects to be arrested as soon as tomorrow in the Stormy Daniels hush money case here in Manhattan. Trump's legal team is making a last-minute push to discredit the district attorney's star witness, and that is Michael Cohen. Just hours from now, the Manhattan district attorney is bringing in Cohen's former lawyer to testify before this grand jury. This is at the request of Trump's legal team. Our Karis Canal is live outside the courthouse in Manhattan. Kara, good morning. Uh, is this unusual that this is happening today, the the former lawyer of Michael Cohen is Robert Costello. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. So Robert Costello, Cohen's former attorney, is set to appear before the grand jury today. Now, sources tell me that this is because Costello reached out to the district attorney's office and lawyers for former President Trump saying that he had information that would contradict what Michael Cohen is saying. Of course, Michael Cohen, who pleaded guilty to federal campaign finance charges several years ago, has tested, has said under oath that he made these hush money payments to Stormy Daniels uh, in coordination with and at the direction of former President Donald Trump. So key question here is what will Costello be telling the grand jury today when he appears before them later today. Now, this he is appearing at the request of the Trump's attorneys. Uh, now, Trump's attorneys, though, believe that this is 
The DA is bringing him in for optics more than for having an impact. Uh, but Michael Cohen was told by the district attorney's office to be on standby. He, he said on MSNBC over the weekend that he was asked to be on hand today in case they needed him as a rebuttal witness. Though Cohen said that he wasn't sure if he would go before the grand jury or just meet again with prosecutors. Is, is the idea that Costello is going to refute what Michael Cohen has said? Yeah, the idea here is that he's going to contradict what Cohen has said. Remember, Costello represented Cohen when Cohen was still aligned with former President Trump. Right. Uh, Cohen had many meetings with him. And so whatever he told him at the time, you'll remember Michael Cohen had said publicly that he made these payments on his own, that right. he did it you know, because he didn't want the former president to be embarrassed. Uh, now, of course, Cohen has since pleaded uh, guilty to federal crimes relating to that, and prosecutors have brought in a number of witnesses. But that is the idea, that Costello would come in and say what Cohen had told him privately right. that would serve as some way to con contradict what he is saying now. Right, because to be successful in any prosecution here on this, the DA's team needs to prove that it was Trump who directed that payment and that it violated, uh, you know, different federal election laws, et cetera. So there's a lot to get to Trump here. What do we know about Trump claiming that he is going to be arrested tomorrow? Because the DA's office is saying that they never said anything of the sort to Trump's team. Well, I think there's just a lot of anticipation seeing a number of these witnesses going in before the grand jury. Michael Cohen was in two days last week, as we've been discussing. He is the star witness here, the person that connects the dots. Uh, there is no decision that has been made yet by the DA's office. So I think a lot of that is just in sort of anticipation and speculation about what might happen. But, you know, Trump made these comments over the weekend. The DA's office, uh, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney, sent an email to his staff saying that they will not tolerate any attempts at intimidation and mm -hmm. that they're preparing, you know, they're in contact with local, state and federal officials uh, to make sure security is in place, that no one from the office should be intimidated or, or threatened. Karis Cannell, thank you for that reporting. As Kara noted, lots of speculation about what could happen, but we do have new reporting this morning on two different Trump investigations, starting with the hush money case that we have been talking about. Don, you have been talking to a source about what this is going to look like if Trump is indicted. You know, he said arrested on, on Truth Social on Saturday, but obviously the likelihood is that he'll be indicted. What are you hearing that what that's actually going to look like, how it's going to play out? And Caitlin, as you know, it's, this is like a poll. It's a snapshot in time, right? At the time when we speak to these sources, it's very fluid and things could mm -hmm. uh, change. But at the time that I did speak with my source, my source says that if, if this indictment does happen, Trump is expected to surrender. He would be processed and arraigned at the courthouse, just like any other person who has been uh, arrested. That includes fingerprinting. And it also includes a mugshot. And there could be accommodations in place to process Trump very quickly, like getting him in front of a judge as soon as possible. Now, Trump is calling on his supporters to protest. And my source is telling me that there is extreme concern about security and New York City officials are actively making plans to handle potential crowds after the uh, former president said that he had possibly would be arrested. And the Manhattan District Attorney is, District Attorney is saying his office will not be intimidated, intimidated, Caitlin. They're taking every single precaution that they can. Yeah, and so that's what's happening here in New York, which everyone's watching closely. But we've talked about the merits of this case. Mm -hmm. There's also the Georgia investigation that is very much still underway. And your reporting on that is what that could look like coming out of Fulton County. What are you, what are you hearing? And as you know, they believe that this is the one that 
poses the bigger risk uh, to Donald Trump. The, the one in Manhattan, they don't think is as, as big a risk. People already know about that. That one is old. But this is a new one. And I spoke with a source with knowledge of the investigation. And here's what they say. And I quote, prosecutors are thinking about bringing racketeering and conspiracy charges in connection with Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. They have been looking at phone calls. They've been looking at emails, texts, documents and testimony from inside and outside the state. Why is that important? Because my source says that this underscores the idea that the push for Trump was not just an organic grassroots effort that started inside of the state, that it was something other and possibly others who were involved, much bigger people who were involved. And remember, investigators have at least three recordings of Trump pressuring Georgia officials, including this one. Take a listen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. So the question is, why then potential racketeering charges? Those racketeering charges allow prosecutors to bring charges against multiple defendants. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis could use the law to try to make the case that Trump and his allies were part of a criminal enterprise. And Willis does like using RICO charges, which were originally designed to take down the mafia. And here's what she said about it. This is over the summer in an unrelated case. Watch. And the reason that I am a fan of RICO is I think jurors are very, very intelligent. They want to know what happened. They want to make an accurate decision about someone's life. And so RICO is a tool that allows a prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story. And need to say Trump denies any criminal wrongdoing and claims that Willis is politically biased. And my source says that the D.A. could make decisions on charges this spring. So ex expect them by spring. The AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, recently spoke with five grand jurors anonymously. And one of them said, quote, a lot's going to come out sooner or later and it's going to be massive. It's going to be massive. So what I was interested by Mark Short, who was the chief of staff to Pence when he was vice president, said yesterday, the fact that this New York case is going first, he thinks benefits Trump in the short term because then it may set Trump up to argue that the Georgia investigation, maybe the federal investigation into January 6th, are politically based. Yeah, yeah, politically motivated. Yeah, and that's, you know, you saw what Trump released this weekend saying that the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation and possible indictment, that's politically motivated. He's also said that about Fannie Willis. He's even called the, the DA, I believe, racist or whatever. But he's going to use every tool that he can use to try to downplay these these two incidents. And then, of course, we have the, the documents as well that's coming up. So... There's a lot here. And we'll, again, just remember, these are a snapshot in time. When we speak to these sources, that is what's happening at the moment. But this is unprecedented. So this is all being negotiated at this point, And we'll see how it actually does play out. Yeah, it remains to be seen. Yeah. Good reporting. Yeah. We are also following another major story this morning. Shares in Credit Suisse have plunged after it agreed to a takeover from their rival Swiss bank, UBS. In the opening minutes of trading in Europe, Credit Suisse fell as much as 62%. UBS shares also lower by 8%. UBS is Switzerland's largest bank. It agreed over the weekend to buy Credit Suisse in a bid to slow this banking crisis. UBS is paying just $3.25 billion for its ailing rival. That's just 60% less than what the bank was worth when markets closed on Friday. For context, Credit Suisse has been facing a crisis in confidence 
for years among investors and customers. It all comes, it all came to a head, I should say, last week when we saw shares collapse some 30 percent. That in turn prompted Swiss authorities to announce a backstop for the nation's second largest bank. Fears of its collapse gripped global markets, which brings us to this news conference yesterday when the Swiss finance minister said this. The bankruptcy of a global systematically important bank would have caused irreparable economic turmoil in Switzerland and throughout the world. The Federal Council is convinced that UBS takeover of Credit Suisse has laid the foundations for greater stability both in Switzerland and internationally. So let's bring in our chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Chrissy Romans. This is so astonishing yeah. to follow this all weekend. A 167-year-old institution, Credit Suisse. A household name. Soon okay. to be no longer. That's right. In a fire sale to its biggest rival for cents on the dollar. And by the way, the Swiss government said you don't need to ask the shareholders. They overrode any That's rights right. the shareholders had. It will just happen because it has to happen. You heard her say stability. I heard confidence and stability over and over again. That was almost two hours of press conference yesterday explaining how that they were going to take Credit Suisse and sell it to UBS and inject stability back into the Swiss banking system and the global banking system. And then again and again, you heard how important uh, Credit Suisse is to the global system. It is a systemically important bank with ties to all the different major economies and, and industries. So really incredibly important they did this. The Fed issuing a statement yesterday saying that they welcome this. Look, U.S. regulators, U.K. regulators, international regulators up all weekend uh, watching these developments. And But making this point, I think it's important, about U.S. banks, the capital and liquidity positions of the U.S. banking system are strong and the U.S. financial system is resilient. Close contact, again, between all the banking capitals and uh, the financial capitals of the world over the it's weekend. It's amazing. They got here for such different reasons. SVB right. so different than Credit Suisse. But this just fear leading right. to this really around the, around the globe. And Credit Suisse had had a lot of problems and scandals over recent years, but it was the current moment of, yeah. of flailing confidence that is how we got here. Can I show you sure. what we've done here? The FD, this is only over two weekends. Yeah. The FDIC backs SVB and Signature Bank deposits. Remarkable there, trying to stop a run on U.S. banks. The Federal Reserve then offers this new lending facility, this favorable loan window against underwater investments. Then the Swiss National Bank last week backs stopping Credit Suisse before UBS finally takes it over. And then overnight... Yes, explain this. This is important banks, for people. An intervention there among central banks and currency markets. This is basically liquidity swaps. This is making sure that all the banks around the world have mm-hmm. access to U.S. Dollars, dollars so that you can keep the financial system going. We always have this, but this is making more of it available. It's a sign, a vote of confidence, and letting the world know there will be liquidity in the banking system. Christine Roman, thank you. What a stunning weekend. Yeah, it's going to be an, a, a rocky, rocky week, I think, too. So No question. All right, we have much more on how the Biden administration is handling this banking crisis that is ahead. And Donald Trump is also calling for protests if he is indicted here in New York. But other top Republicans have a different message, what they're saying ahead. Plus, Chinese President Xi Jinping has just landed in Russia for his three-day meeting with President Putin. What could come from this high-stakes sit-down? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So Donald Trump urged his supporters to protest and take our nation back, claiming that the Manhattan DA's office will be arresting him tomorrow for Stormy Daniels. 
the hush money case. One of Trump's lawyers warning of, quote, mayhem, but some top Republicans have different messages. Watch. I don't think people should protest this, no. And I, I think President Trump, if you talk to him, he doesn't believe that either. He's not talking in a harmful way, and nobody should. Nobody should harm one another in this. It is going to cause mayhem, Paula. I mean, it's just a very scary time in our country. If this is what we're doing in this country, you better secure the premises because it's dangerous. You know, people are going to get upset. Hmm. Let's bring in now senior political commentator Errol Lewis. Errol, good morning. morning. So you have... um, some Republicans saying, don't protest, don't do it. And then you have the attorney sort of saying, well, you know, if they, this is wrong and that's what you should expect. What do you make of this? And the NYPD is preparing for possible. Yeah, I mean, unrest. look, my, my first instinct and, you know, not to be too much of a cynical New Yorker, but, you know, what they call mayhem in the streets is what we call, you know, Tuesday. Right. Um, it, it, look, anybody who's thinking about coming here to cause disruption should be aware that there were 2000 Capitol Police on January 6th. There are 35,000 members right. of the NYPD and they've got drones and submarines and, you know, so, you know, if, if people want to come and protest, that is their right. If they want to cause disruption, they can try. But, you know, just as a matter of, of simple fact, it's the NYPD, the N- it's the NYPD. <laughs> they don't play around. And, and yes, if you do come here to do that, you will be outnumbered, you will be outgunned, you will be outmanned, you will be outfought. Um, so I, I'm, I wouldn't expect you know, mayhem in that sense. Uh, but I've, you know, look, I've seen a lot of demonstrations. A lot of people have protested outside the New York courthouses and the NYPD, which routinely handles over 400 parades a year, they, they know how to do mass demonstrations. They, they do them quite often. And so at, at a minimum, I don't think we'll have disruption that stops the city from functioning or anything like that. But obviously there'll be a lot of people who are upset if indeed the former president is arrested. Yeah, and there is a concern inside Trump's circle, even among some of the members, maybe not all of them, as we saw there from Alina, that it does resemble January 6th, that there is a recreation of that. That's a fear. They've said, don't call for protest. Of course, he did that on Saturday. What about this idea, though, that we are hearing from people like Mark Short or even other lawmakers that uh, they do believe that in the short term, this could, could politically be beneficial to Trump, that he gets to have this image of him walking into the courthouse. I'm told he might make a speech after. Oh, well, well it's an interesting idea. I mean, you know, if, if, that, if they really believe that, though, they should celebrate uh, the prospect of an arrest if they really think it's going to help him politically. I don't think it will help him politically. Uh, look, on January, on January 6th, however misguided people may have been or factually sort of off base or riled up uh, by the, uh, the, the rally that preceded the attack, uh, they thought something important was at stake, which was the outcome of an election and the leadership of the country. In this case, what, what are you, what are you going to risk your freedom for so that, you know, Trump can get away with hush money payments to lie about cheating on his third wife? I mean, this is not serious stuff on, on one level. This is not really a public dispute on another level. It's really just a question of did he break some laws in the in the context of doing what is broadly admitted to have been some pretty sleazy personal behavior? Uh, now, if, if people want to go to jail for that, okay, you can you can do that. But I don't I don't think of it as sort of analogous to January 6th in that sense. Now, there are a lot of people who think that uh, you know, any other person than Donald Trump would have, you know, sort of been able to do this and there'd be no misdemeanor charges. There'd be no particular uh, investigation. Falsification of business records. If you do a Google search, Serious. there are a lot of people who get in a lot of trouble for doing that, at least in New York. And so, it, you know, if at a minimum that's what happened here and, you know, the evidence is overwhelming, it seems that that's I don't even think that that's in dispute, that there were, you know, there were false entries made about 
whether payments to Michael Cohen were actual legal expenses. He says it didn't happen, and he went to prison to prove the point on, on one level. Um, I think it was Rudy Giuliani who first disclosed to the public that these yeah. these payments had been made. So you know, a lot of this is not in dispute. It's very document heavy. I don't I don't know if this is going to be one of these long dragged out you know sort of cases where we wonder what was in people's minds or anything like that. It it all seems to have been laid out. Switching gears to how the Biden administration has been handling this banking crisis. Christine just explained what happened over the weekend with Credit Suisse. But the reason, one of the big reasons Credit Suisse came to the brink over the weekend is because of what happened here in the United States and real fear about the stability of the banking sector. I want your response to what Republican Governor, potential 2024 presidential candidate, uh, Governor Sununu said um, to Jake yesterday morning about how he thinks the administration has handled this. What it really says to all the other banks that are out there is if you take risky investments, if you don't manage your investments wisely, don't worry, the federal government will back your play. So that actually incentivizes worst worst management, higher risk by other banks down the road, because now we've set this precedent going forward. Jake asked him how he thought the administration was handling it. He was very critical. And this administration, the Biden administration, does not want anyone using the word bailout around this. They're That's very right. sensitive to that. Because, I mean, well, it's not, I mean, it's not a bailout. Uh, it, it is, though, I mean, there, there's something wrong here, for, for, for sure. Um, putting aside the political spin that, you know, you just heard, there is a problem here. Because if you're doing business with a smaller, medium-sized bank, you now have an incentive to go to a big money yeah. center too big to fail, systemically important bank. And so it's going to be those mega banks, the, the city banks and the J.P. Morgan Chases and the, and the Banks of America that are going to start getting a whole lot of business. And they already have. They, they've, they already have. That's why they're systemically important. And so it's going to cause even more concentration. It's going to make it harder for smaller and medium-sized banks to do business. Um, and ultimately, you know, concent- that kind of concentration will lead to higher fees, worse deals, and, and, and so forth. You have, I mean, I think it's amazing. Look at the front of the journal today. First Republic looms large for regulators. Would you ever have imagined a bank like First Republic would be in this position right now? Well, you know, look, there was, there was always a situation in the United States where we'd have hundreds or even thousands of banks. Uh, and then you look at European countries, a country like Germany, and there'd yeah. be like seven banks, yeah. right? So we're moving more toward that that European model. Now, to see that they can have problems in a place like Switzerland uh, tells you that, you know, yes, the crisis can creep into, and this is the problem with having all of your eggs in only a few baskets. What if you drop that basket? Um, That's kind of a larger question for economists and business leaders to try and figure out. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if we do shift more toward that that, that European model where there are only a handful of systemically important banks that have an overwhelming amount of the business in this country, then yes, the the government is in effect a partner because you cannot let that all, all fall apart. You cannot risk you know, tipping the country over into recession or even depression. You can't have millions of people who have uninsured deposits that are going to put their money at risk. We're not going to go back to 1933. But, uh, you know, if if, uh, in some ways that's a question for another day. We're we're, we are where we are. uh, And uh, anybody watching this, you know, your deposits obviously are going to be safe. You might want to think about going to one of those systemically important banks, though, if you really do want to worry about it. Hey, you don't, I should say, if you don't want to worry about it. I want to ask you, we have to go, but um, the question, the big question that many New Yorkers have for this week, and that Tuesday or Wednesday, or if it does happen, is what do I do? That's what people are asking me. What do I do? Do I go to work? Do 
I take the subway? Do I, you cover New York specifically. That's why I'm asking. I know you're not law enforcement. But yeah, what do you think? well, it's Spectrum News. Again, I mean, I, not to be cynical, but it, it becomes sort of a traffic question, like, you know, yeah. which subway lines are going to be running or yeah. which streets might you want to avoid? We've had very, very big disruptions here. Um, and, you know, you remember if you, were, if you were in town on September 11th, I mean, within a week or two, People were, you know, back at work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, 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 city, the city moves on. Yeah, and we do. Earl Lewis, thank, thank you. you so much for joining us here this morning on set. Also, we are tracking major news on the international stage. Just moments ago, China's President Xi Jinping, you see him here descending the stairs. He's arriving in Moscow to meet with President Putin. It is the first time he's been there since Russia invaded Ukraine. And it comes just days after the International Criminal Court issued a war crimes arrest warrant for Putin. What the two leaders are set to discuss, that's next. Just moments ago, Chinese leader Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow for a three-day state visit. This is his first visit to Russia since Russia invaded Ukraine. And later this morning, he will hold a one-on-one meeting with Vladimir Putin. This is Western leaders grow very wary of the two nations deepening cooperation. Ivan Watson joins us live from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Ivan, thank you very much for, for being with us. This is such a significant meeting, and it comes just on the heels of President Putin going to Mariupol right after he visited Crimea and Rostovan. Uh, There is so much at at stake here, and the West obviously very concerned, even though China is billing this as a mission of peace. Right, and the Ukrainians watching this very nervously. And that's because uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, uh, they keep talking about their friendship with no limits, this incredible, uh, uh, basically, alliance between Russia and China. Uh, Xi Jinping sent a letter to Russian state media before this trip. He says this is the 10th time he's visiting Russia since he became president. It'll be his 40th meeting with Vladimir Putin. He had some digs in his letter, thinly veiled at the U.S., complaining about hegemony and, and calling for a more democratic, multipolar world. What he did not mention at all was Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago and the ongoing war. Instead, Xi Jinping referred to this as the Ukraine crisis and claimed that Beijing is neutral in this, that he wants peace negotiations and dialogue. Uh, He has yet to speak directly with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, since Russia's invasion a year ago. And when it comes to the International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant on Friday against Vladimir Putin for alleged war crimes, well, the Chinese foreign ministry has weighed in on that. Uh, It is calling for the ICC to be objective and impartial, to respect the jurisdictional immunity enjoyed by a head of state, and to avoid politicization and double standards. So take that into context when you uh, discuss China's claimed neutrality in this war. And China has at no point throughout this war uh, condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They remain a huge buyer of Russian oil, helping finance all of this. And one of the things that the West and John Kirby here uh, in the U.S. at the White House has been warning against is if China were to come out after this visit, Ivan and, and Uh, say, well, there should be a a peace deal right now that would not be palatable by Ukraine in the West, given that Russia has taken more territory than when this all began. 
Sure, and has uh, declared that it is annexing Ukrainian territory right. seized uh, since the, the invasion of last year. And to underscore that, you had Vladimir Putin on Saturday, fresh from this ICC arrest warrant, visiting the Russian-occupied uh, Ukrainian city of Mariupol. He, the Kremlin says he landed by helicopter. He drove himself into the outskirts of that shattered city and visited an apartment building that the Russian government just built. While he's meeting with some of the residents there, Poppy, you hear a voice off camera that our linguists say uh, somebody was yelling, this is all a show, it's not true. Uh, this time last year, the Russian military had encircled that city and was bombing it from land, sea, and air, destroying much of it. And I was interviewing residents who were fleeing, who described spending weeks under bombardment, terrified, hiding in basements, burying neighbors who got killed by Russian artillery in the front yards of their apartment buildings. And I spoke to one of the women I met a year ago who escaped. She's living, she's a refugee overseas. She said seeing Vladimir Putin in her hometown is like seeing a serial killer wow. return to the scene of the crime. Yeah, of, of course it is. And that, that really says it all. Ivan Watson, thank you for the reporting from Kharkiv. I want to bring in now our CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times correspondent David Sanger for all the perspective on this. David, good morning to you. And what are you going to be watching for today? Do you think there'll be any tangible agreements coming out of this summit between Putin and Xi? Caitlin, my suspicion is that he's going to be fairly cautious here, because while he was able to negotiate uh, an agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, just a few weeks ago. This is a lot more complex, and he doesn't want to do anything that's going to threaten his very important relationship with Putin. I think there are two things to look for. Uh -oh. I think we're having a bit of trouble with David's yeah. shot. We'll see if we can get him back. Obviously, we want to know those two things that yeah. David Sanger is going to be looking for because this is such a such a critical meeting. And also, you know, one thing I wanted to talk to David about, we'll see if we can get him back, was the respective op-eds we saw from Xi Jinping and from Vladimir Putin. They were each published in each other's, basically, state media. And Putin said in his that they would not accept an agreement that did not grant Russia control of the land that it's already taken in Ukraine, which Ukraine has ruled out. Yeah, and they, they seem getting off the plane there. But also, it would be interesting to speak to him um, as well. Uh, about Vladimir Putin visiting Mariupol, mm -hmm. driving his own car. It's the first time really uh, at this point so close to um, the front lines in this war. So to yeah. get what's happening with both of them would be an interesting yeah. perspective from David. We'll try, but we'll see. In the meantime, we'll get back to that. Miami Beach cracking down on nightlife with a new curfew after a pair of deadly shootings during spring break. That's next. Plus, Bruce Willis's wife is opening up about what it's like to care for her husband as he's living with dementia. Her very moving message for his birthday. We'll share that with you ahead. Miami Beach issuing a state of emergency and setting a midnight curfew after a second fatal shooting this weekend during spring break. City officials say the crowds have been excessively large and unruly and plan to discuss even more restrictions. CNN's Carlos Suarez joins us now live from Miami Beach. Good morning to you, Carlos. So tell us what happened. Well, uh, Don, good morning. So the city of Miami Beach uh, really finds itself in the very same position it was this time last year. That is, they are trying to figure out how to handle the remaining weeks of spring break and the crowds that have taken over 
parts of Miami Beach. As you mentioned, the city leaders, they are expected to meet later today to decide whether or not to bring back that curfew that went into effect last night at midnight and was lifted at six in the morning. The city is going to decide whether or not to bring that back uh, through the uh, end of the week as well as the, we uh, the weekend here. Uh, now, there were two shootings here on Miami Beach. There was one on Friday night and the other happened in the early morning hours on Sunday. Both of those shootings ended with one person dead. Now, in the shooting from uh, Sunday, uh, Miami Beach police say that a 24-year-old man from Fort Lauderdale was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. That is something that we have seen uh, take place in years past. That is to say that a number of the folks that are causing all of this trouble are really uh, people that live in South Florida. They're from Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. And so a lot of this disorder is not being caused by folks that are coming in for spring break. Now, we heard from a few folks uh, that were out here enjoying some of the time off, as well as a business owner, and here's what they told us. There are a lot of policemen on bikes. There are way more security guards. It's definitely more on lockdown than it was yesterday. They need to shut it all off and take the party off the streets. Again, this is something that city leaders here on Miami Beach have been trying to figure out for several years. They're trying to uh, strike a delicate balance uh, between its uh, police presence here uh, to deter some of these bad uh, you know, these bad actors that might be out here, uh, mostly from uh, the South Florida area, uh, while also still trying to be uh, welcoming. Uh, one other possible restriction that they might take into account later this week is uh, the further uh, restriction of alcohol. Uh, Don, yesterday businesses were not allowed uh, to sell uh, alcohol uh, essentially off-premises mm. after 6 o'clock. All right. Don? We'll be watching. Carlos Suarez, live for us in Miami Beach. Thank you. Well, this morning we are wishing a very happy birthday to Bruce Willis. The actor turned 68 on Sunday. Happy birthday, dear Dad. Willis's family announced last month that he has been diagnosed with a frontal with frontotemporal dementia. There is no cure for that. His wife Emma said as she celebrates her husband's birthday, she is also grieving him. So today is my husband's birthday. Um, I have started the morning by crying, <laughs> uh, as you can see by my swollen eyes and snotty nose. I just think it's important that you see all sides of this. Um, I always get this message or people always tell me that, oh, like, you're so strong. I don't know how you do it. I'm not given a choice. <laughs> she ended her message talking about how hard it was to put together this video of all these touching memories with him. But she said, as much as I do it for myself, I do it for you, meaning everyone, because I know how much you love my husband. Uh, is anyone has ever been um, involved with either dementia or Alzheimer's, it is just painful. And I just listen to her. I just want to cry. I remember my grandmother when dealing with that, and she just was not the person that she had been for her entire life. And you mourn her. You mourn them when they're going through it, and then you mourn them after. It's like a double, it's terrible. So we're all thinking about her. Yeah, we are. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll be right back. Be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right. March Madness has already delivered some epic Cinderella stories for the ages. The slipper still fits one team, at least. Princeton University, still dancing. 
It was a 15th seed. They advanced to the Sweet 16 after they beat second seed Arizona and seventh seed Missouri. It is the longest run that the Tigers have had since 1965. Another Cinderella team from New Jersey, Farley Dickinson, wasn't supposed to be in the tournament at all. But they got in on a technicality. They took full advantage. The 16-seeded Knights pulled what is being called the greatest upset in tournament history, upsetting number one seed Purdue before a tight second-round loss to Florida Atlantic last night. South Carolina's Furman University hit a game-winning three-pointer with less than three seconds on the clock, leading the number 13 seed to upset Virginia, which was a number four seed in just the first round. The Paladins fell to San Diego State also over the weekend. Joining us now is CBS Sports College basketball analyst and former Texas Tech head coach Chris Walker, who has been up just a, you know went to bed a, a few hours, hours ago. Yeah, it's okay, but okay, I said Farley Fairly Dickinson. I, I don't even say the name right because they were so. My dad never talked about this yesterday. The fact that they got in on a technicality and the way we saw them dash a, a lot of hopes. You know what? Mary Mack won the conference championship, the NEC conference championship. So we technically call Fairleigh Dixon, they call him FDU, the 17th seed. <laughs> and they got in, they're the smallest team in the NCAA tournament, and they beat the biggest team with Zach Eady. And it was an unbelievable game. It was the biggest upset spread-wise in NCAA history. 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 Wow. Yeah. So, so what, should we, what should we be looking for? What should we be watching? Uh, besides all of it, I know you're going to say that, but is it Princeton? Is What's the deal? Listen, Princeton is shocking people. You know, the smart guys. You know, they're playing very smart. <laughs> they're playing very, very, very tough. And, uh, you know, beating Arizona the way they did and beating Missouri. I mean, my bracket's busted, so I don't even want to show. I'm embarrassed to show my bracket. <laughs> I don't even know what mine is. <laughs> but no at idea. the end of the day, Princeton did a great job. And some of the little storylines, you talk about the Paladins, the kid from Virginia throwing the pass away, and the kid that stole the J.P. Pegase, he had made a shot of three in 15 consecutive contempt attempts, and he made the three to win the game. So those stories are just unbelievable. But at the end of the day, Kansas was another one. Everybody was, uh, you know, was looking to win. And, and Kansas, six straight national champions have never gone past wow. the first weekend. And obviously, Bill Self wasn't feeling well. And yeah. the last team to repeat was uh, Florida in 2006 and 2007. So this is the greatest single elimination tournament in the world, and it is very difficult to win weekend by weekend. And Alabama's out, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> Alabama. I wouldn't be here if they were. They're, they're the number one overall seed. They are absolutely, you know, they're juggernaut. Nate Oates has his team playing well. Brandon Miller is probably the best player in the country. So Alabama, usually a football school. I know you right? said when you got here, you're like, we don't need Alabama to do it. Alabama's a football school. Yeah, they win in everything. They, you know, <laughs> Nick Saban, we don't, you know, give somebody else a chance to win something else. Global domination. Okay, to be fair, we've lost a lot of basketball over the years, so this season feels really good. But I've been texting Poppy in all caps all weekend about Princeton because we talked about this when we made our brackets. We were like, I was like, Poppy, you got to put Princeton in next time because, I mean, they've, they've surprised us. It's, it's really fun to watch the upsets. That's the best part of March Madness. That, no, no. It, it certainly is I fun. You Princeton and in. that's why, people, and again, you know, people, once it gets to a certain level, close to the Final Four, for programming, they want the Blue Bloods. But to start off, the excitement... They want, you know, Princeton. And listen, there's something in the water in New Jersey because St. Peter's, everybody loved the Peacocks last year. Mm. Now it's Princeton. And I'm telling you, Princeton has a chance. So people need to keep watching. The has Ivy a chance League. to go how far? Maybe, maybe Look at my game. bracket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need a dose of reality. That's good. Well, well, well Creighton, is a, they play Creighton. So yeah. Creighton's a pretty, they beat Baylor, which was my Final Four team. So, it, it, yeah, so I lost them as well. But Creighton is pretty, pretty really good. They have a great coach in Greg McDermott. But... I, I, this Princeton team has something special about them. Mitch Henderson has done an unbelievable job with this group. So don't count them out, you know. But at the end of the day, 
at the Cinderella, the shoe stops fitting at some point. Guess who's coming on the show later? Who's that? The guy you just named. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> He's definitely You might watching. run into him in the hall. So. <laughs> Sorry, bitch, I apologize. You're it's lucky you're not in my bracket or you'd be setting up a lemonade stand. Listen, I, I lost Indiana. The only team I have left is Gonzaga, so, you know, it's not looking good for me, and I'm supposed to be the quote-unquote expert. All right, I'm going to have you look at my bracket. So much for experts. Sure. Chris Walker, thank you. Thank you, guys. Really thank you so much. much. All right. Well, China's President Xi Jinping has arrived in Russia for a critical visit with Vladimir Putin. This is the first time they're meeting face-to-face since Russia invaded Ukraine. We'll take you live to Moscow next. China has not condemned Putin's invasion of Ukraine. They are still buying Russian oil and energy resources. So we'll watch what comes out of this meeting. Russian President Vladimir Putin made a surprise visit to the shattered Ukrainian city of Mariupol. He knows he has to somehow get the morale of these of what troops are remaining up in any way he can. The former president says he expects to be arrested as soon as tomorrow in the Stormy Daniels hush money case here in Manhattan. I don't think people should protest this, though. We also have a select committee on the weaponization of government. This applies directly to them. I think you'll see actions from them. Robert Costello, a former attorney for Donald Trump's one-time fixer, Michael Cohen, is set to appear before the Manhattan grand jury. I think he has inside knowledge and we should be paying attention. The city of Miami Beach is now imposing a spring break curfew after a second deadly shooting. There are a lot of policemen on bikes. There are way more security guards. They need to shut it all off and take the party off the streets. The federal council is convinced that UBS takeover of Credit Suisse has laid the foundations for greater stability. We have more of a crisis with the sort of second and third tier banks. This whole tranche of banks has been under-regulated for five years now. And people are very concerned about when you lift the hood, what's under the hood. Arkansas. Pulls off the upset, down goes Kansas. No repeat chance this year. Put in a lot of work. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this Monday morning. We're going to get to the latest that happened in March Madness over the weekend, but we're going to start this morning in Moscow. Just moments ago, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, arrived in the Russian capital for his three-day high-stakes state visit with President Putin. Later this morning, he is going to meet directly with the Russian leader one-on-one. Beijing is calling this trip, quote, a journey of peace, where she is supposed to help mediate peace talks over Ukraine, but Western leaders are under, understandably very skeptical and wary of the two autocratic leaders growing cooperation. Sinan's Matthew Chance is live in Moscow. Matthew, obviously this meeting is going to be happening in just a few hours, but it's incredibly symbolic for the fact that it's she's first time in Russia since they invaded Ukraine and the questions about this partnership and what it looks like coming out of this meeting. Yeah, it's a three-day visit. It's not just symbolic because it's the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's just a few days after Vladimir Putin was indicted by the International Criminal Court uh, for war crimes in Ukraine as well. And so we're going to have a situation where Xi Jinping, the ruler of China, is going to be standing side by side and having face-to-face negotiations uh, with an indicted uh, war criminal. Um, And so that's something that will send a very strong message, I think, both to Russia, that that China stands by its, its 
friend and ally, but also to the rest of the world as well, that, that even though uh, China has said it wants to play an impartial role in brokering uh, a diplomatic solution to the crisis, as Russians call it, uh, inside, inside Ukraine, the fact is that, you know, it, it is very much showing a, a strong level of support uh, for the Russian leadership. What I think many people will be watching for, though, is that what you know, how far will that relationship extend? Uh, strong political support, yes. Diplomatic support, yes. But will the Chinese provide much-needed military aid uh, to the Russians? So far, they, they haven't crossed that line. But there is concern that they may choose to do so. Caitlin. Yeah, and obviously the U.S. is watching this closely. I've been talking to officials all morning who are saying they're looking to see if there's any tangible agreements coming out of this. I think one thing they've also been warning about, Matthew, and I'm wondering what you're hearing on this, is whether or not you're going to see China call for some kind of a ceasefire in Ukraine, which obviously they believe would benefit Russia here. Well, I mean, they've already called for a ceasefire. You know, last month, China issued a 12-point peace proposal to bring to an end the, the conflict in Ukraine, in which a ceasefire was, was a part of that. Uh, but so, and so, too, was a condemnation uh, of violation of territorial integrity of, of UN states. Um, it also condemned uh, unilateral sanctions against uh, individuals as well. Um, uh, obviously, an inherent criticism uh, of the sanctions against, against Russia by the United States and, and others in the international community. But what it didn't specifically do is condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and call for Russia to withdraw, which is one of the reasons why that, that peace initiative has been getting such a lukewarm response by the United States and others uh, in the West as well. But it, it is something the Kremlin says that the two leaders are going to be discussing in more detail over the course of the next three days. Yeah, we'll look to see what they say. Matthew Chance in Moscow. Thank you. So let's bring in CNN political and national security analyst and New York Times correspondent David Sanger. David, thanks for coming back. We fixed the tech. We're glad you're back with us. Talk to us about what you expect from these three days, given the fact that China, that Xi Jinping just said moments ago, reiterated his willingness uh, to work with Vladimir Putin to, quote, safeguard the international order. This is after Putin, just before invading Ukraine, talked about their relationship, these two leaders, as a no-limits partnership. That's right. I, I worry about two different things here. The first Ivan raised before, which is, do we see arms? And, you know, basically, do we see the Chinese getting further into this war? I think the second thing to look for is whether or not in some kind of peace proposal for an armistice or a ceasefire, essentially the Chinese come in on the side of the Russians to try to cement the gains that they have right now. And that's why uh, you're hearing from the Americans and from President Zelensky and Ukrainians great concern that China would seek in some way to reward Russia and basically freeze this the way the Korean conflict has been frozen now for 50 or 60 years. This seems to be what they're really worried about, the, the U.S., in terms of trying to preempt John Kirby, who's going to come on the program a little later today, has been saying it would not be acceptable. So China's trying to play this peacemaker, but it would not be acceptable for China to come out and say, OK, let's push towards peace right now in this moment, because in this moment, Russia has taken more Ukrainian territory than obviously before the invasion. That's right. And uh, that's a, a significant worry. On the other hand, the Chinese have to be a little bit cautious here. And they have to be cautious because they're worried about Europe. They would like to make sure that Europe does not join in any sanctions against China. 
that they that Europe and the United States do not tighten this bond that has been created since uh, the um, the war began. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Europe's a major trading partner for them and is continuing to take a good deal of their technology. So I think they're not going to want to get in too deep. And that's one reason, I think, that they've probably been cautious so far in providing weapons uh, to the Russians. The problem is the Russians don't have very many other places to turn right now. Their only other sources are Iran and North Korea. And obviously, the quality of that is, is not up to what China can give them. Also, David, what it says about China on the world stage, because this comes after China just brokered that diplomatic deal with Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now we're seeing them try to, to assert themselves in this way, saying you know, that they are this powerful influence when it comes to international order. They would love nothing more, Caitlin, than to play the role that the United States played during much of the Cold War and post-Cold War period, which is the central player that everybody had to come to so that they could organize the world on the basis and the rules that they consider advantageous. And they think the United States did this from the end of World War II in 1945 through to just a few years ago. And that's why it was so important to them to play this role between Iran and Saudi Arabia and would be important to them to do this now. Uh, and of course, the United States not only doesn't want to give up its position on that, but it also is suspicious that China is not the neutral player that it pretends to be. Of course, that's what the Chinese say about the United States. All of it are very interesting optics for Vladimir Putin, especially after just visiting Mariupol, like going to the war zone, David. What do you make of that? It is. I mean, he was doing two or three things there, Don. The first is he wanted to say, this is my territory now. You know, this is an area that uh, obviously they not only bombed and destroyed, but it's an area where they kidnapped many of those children for whom uh, he was indicted by the International Criminal Court. Because the second thing he was saying was the indictment means nothing to me. In fact, uh, they'll continue with all of their activities in Mariupol that they have done until now. So it was a real act of defiance and clearly getting in the endorsement of having uh, Xi Jinping show up for their 39th meeting mm -hmm. uh, since the two of them took over as leaders. That's pretty significant. All right, David Sanger, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you so much. So in other news now, it could be an eventful week here in Manhattan with a possible indictment looming over Donald Trump. The former president says that he expects to be arrested as soon as tomorrow in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. But the timeline remains unclear. Sources telling me that if and when the indictment happens, Trump is expected to surrender. He'll have his mugshot and fingerprints taken just like everybody else. Trump's legal team is making a last minute push to discredit the district attorney's star witness, who is Michael Cohen. At their request, Cohen's former lawyer is set to testify today before the grand jury. And we told, we're told that he uh, came forward and offered evidence to contradict some of Cohen's claims. So let's discuss more now when we bring in CNN's Kara Scannell, live outside the courthouse in Manhattan this morning. Good morning, Kara. What will we see, if anything, today? 
Well, good morning, Don. I mean, as you said, attorney Bob Costello is expected to appear before the grand jury today. He, had, he has represented numerous Trump allies, including Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, and at one point, Michael Cohen. Several years ago, he was representing him in this, uh, in connection with this hush money investigation. So, source tells us that Costello had reached out to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and attorneys for Trump, saying that he had information that would contradict the testimony of Michael Cohen. You remember, Cohen pled guilty to federal charges, saying that he made these hush money payments in coordination with and at the direction of former President Trump. So Costello expected today. Trump's attorneys asked the DA's office to bring him in. They think he's being brought in just for the optics of it, but he will have the opportunity to go before the grand jury. Now, the DA's office has asked Michael Cohen uh, to appear today as a possible rebuttal witness. Cohen saying on MSNBC over the weekend that he would, was asked to come in. He wasn't sure if it's to go before the grand jury or just to meet with the DA's office. So we're going to have a lot of activity today behind me uh, in this building where the grand jury sits and where the DA's office meets. Now, over the weekend, with Trump's calls for a protest, saying that he expects to be uh, arrested and charged this week, uh, the DA's office sent an email to staff saying that they will not tolerate any attempts to intimidate them. Don? All right, Kara Scannell, live for us in Manhattan this morning. Thank you, Carol. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now vowing to investigate Manhattan's district attorney. Listen to this. It doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on. It doesn't matter if this was President Trump or if this was a Democrat. It should be equal justice in America. And stop going after people because you have political differences. Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanone is live in Orlando where House Republicans are having their annual retreat. Uh, you, you're the one uh, who interviewed Kevin McCarthy just a few months ago. Is this surprising? No, not at all. He is offering a full-throated defense of former President Donald Trump. He called an arrest an outrageous abuse of power. He said the Manhattan DA is radical. He attacked them. And he's even promised that Republican committees are going to investigate whether federal funds were used to probe this hush money payment. In fact, he told us at a press conference last night that he's already talked to committee chairman Jim Jordan about investigating this. He hinted that there could be action as soon as today. So Republicans potentially moving pretty quickly to line up in defense of Trump. But there was one area where Kevin McCarthy broke with Donald Trump, and that is over Trump's calls for protests if he is arrested. Take a listen. I don't think people should protest this, no. And I, I, I think President Trump, if you talk to him, he doesn't believe that either. He's not talking in a harmful way, and nobody should. Nobody should harm one another in this. Of course, Kevin McCarthy was treading pretty carefully there. He has credited his entire speakership to Donald Trump. But interestingly enough, he has not actually endorsed Donald Trump for president yet. And I asked him last night whether he thinks it's appropriate for Donald Trump to still run for president if he is ultimately convicted of a crime. But McCarthy said it's his prerogative and it's his constitutional right, Poppy. That's a fa I mean, good question. That's a fascinating point that he hasn't that he hasn't endorsed him yet. He just said, I don't think President Trump has called for that. But over the weekend, President Trump called for exactly that in terms of calling for protests and said, quote, take our nation back if he is arrested. 
Right. And you could tell there that McCarthy was at the same time trying to break with Trump, trying to call uh, for calmness. Mm -hmm. But he was also trying to defend Trump at the same time. He was trying to sort of explain away his comments for him. And that's a common predicament for Republicans here. You know, they really wanted to focus this retreat on their upcoming policy battles. They wanted to strategize a plan to preserve their fragile majority in 2024. And instead, they're playing defense for Donald Trump. He has absolutely dominated the political conversation here so far at this policy retreat. Of course, that is frustrating for some Republicans. But at the end of the day, Trump is still a dominant force inside the House GOP. And so most Republicans yeah. are happy to defend him, Poppy. Trump front and center once again at this Republican gathering. Melanie, thanks very much for the reporting. Yeah, a lot of speculation on what this could look like. But we have new reporting this morning on what's happening behind the scenes with another Trump investigation as prosecutors in Atlanta are considering bringing racketeering and conspiracy charges potentially in connection with Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Don, we've been talking about this, what this could look like as this investigation may be potentially more damaging if this is something they decide to pursue. Well, you know that because you've been reporting extensively on all of these investigations as well. And we know they're not specifically, especially in Georgia, naming the former president. But you heard what the, the jurors who came out of that said. Uh, I think they said uh, momentous or it could be huge or whatever, whoever. That's not the exact terminology. But we have been discussing this. I have been talking with someone with knowledge of the investigation. They say prosecutors, massive is the word that I was looking for. They say prosecutors have a large volume of substantial evidence related to a possible conspiracy from inside and outside of the state. That includes recordings of phone calls, emails, text messages, documents, and testimony before a special grand jury. Now, the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, could make decisions on charges this spring. That is what the source is telling me. So look uh, to that. CNN's senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Elliot Honig, is here to break it down. Elliot, I'm so glad that you're here to talk about this, because this is right up your alley. You have taught, you know about this because you're a former federal prosecutor, but you have taught this sort of prosecution, what is these RICO and uh, conspiracy and racketeering, that's what you do. Yes, classes in session. You ready? Classes in session. Okay, yeah. here's why your reporting, Don, is so important. When we're thinking about how a case could be charged, you're always going to start with your base level crimes. And here it appears the DA is looking at potential election interference and election fraud. Now, you reported they're considering conspiracy. That's a loaded word, but all it really means is an agreement, a meeting of the minds between two or more people to commit a crime. And then if you go up to racketeering, now this is a really powerful tool that prosecutors use. What you have to do is show two things. First of all, the existence of what we call a racketeering enterprise. That can be a mafia family, that can be a drug trafficking organization, but it can also be a corporation or a political entity. And then you have to show that they engage in what we call a pattern of racketeering activity, meaning that they committed two or more crimes in an organized fashion, which brings us to this other new piece of information, there's a third phone call. We already know about, of course, the right. infamous phone call to Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find 11,780 votes. There's also a public recording of Donald Trump talking to this investigator, Francis Watson, when he tells her when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. Now we know Trump also called the former Georgia Speaker of the House, asking him to convene a special session. Now, Don, as we know, we've heard from some of the grand jurors, special grand jurors who've come mm -hmm. out. They've told us that they've recommended indictments for more than a dozen people. Now, Fonnie Willis, though, will ultimately get the decision. That special grand jury cannot indict. If she wants to indict, she will have to take the case to a regular grand jury. Now, when's that going to happen? She told the DA, told a judge 55 days ago that her decision was imminent. 55 days, so I guess 
imminence is in the eye of the beholder. This is already a, a grand jury that's already sitting is, is who would actually see this. Yeah, grand jury sit every two months, every so two she months. can start whenever she wants. And I think we need to be, look, I, I just want to be clear about this. They're not naming the former president, but you heard the jurors who came out who said this will be massive and that is leading people to believe that it is a former president. But again, yep. not for sure. They're certainly suggesting, but correct, they've not named. Okay. I want to turn to Manhattan now because I also have some reporting on that, but this possible indictment and then the former president is saying, oh, it's going to happen on Tuesday. And they're saying the reason he's saying that is because he's saying that it was leaks in the office. I'm not saying that specifically, but because of leaks in Bragg's, right. Bragg's office. So walk us through if this does happen. We don't know if it's going to happen. If it does happen. They're thinking it's going to possibly be Wednesday if it does happen. Right. Walk us through potential criminal charges and what happens in Manhattan if this does So, happen. of course, this brings us back to 2016 when Donald Trump paid $130,000 in hush money to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Those payments went through Michael Cohen. Now, making a hush money payment is not necessarily a crime on its own. What could be criminal here? Under And we're in New York state law here. First of all, falsification of business records, if they falsely log these payments as attorney fees. That's just a misdemeanor, though, Don. No one realistically goes to prison on that kind of misdemeanor. However, if the prosecutors can show that that falsification of business records happened in order to promote some other crime, and here that would be a campaign finance violation, then we're looking at a felony. Now, it's a Class E felony. That's the lowest level. There's A through E. There is no F. That would be a maximum of four years in prison. But in Class E felonies, nonviolent, it's quite common for people to not get sent to prison at all. And of course, the big development today is there will be testimony in the grand jury, as Kara just reported from Robert Costello. This is very unusual to have someone go into a grand jury and present evidence on behalf of a potential defendant. And so he, it appears, will try to undermine the prosecution's star witness, Michael Cohen. Yeah. Um, And let's be clear. Most likely he would enter through an underground. You won't see him going in. There are right? all manner of tunnels and back entrances. And no down handcuffs there. or whatever, but he will have his mugshot and, and he will be fingerprinted. Donald Trump, yes. Anyone who gets arrested gets fingerprinted and gets a mugshot. Yeah. Again, if this does happen. If and then we happens. also have the Eugene uh, Carroll lawsuit that is playing out as well. If you want to quickly, if you want to just yeah. do that. Well, at the same time, next month, there's a civil lawsuit. This is not a criminal case, but okay. also downtown, just across the street in federal court, Eugene Carroll has sued Donald Trump. For defamation, remember E. Jean Carroll alleged Donald Trump raped her in a Manhattan department store. Trump denied it, called her a liar. She has now sued him for defamation. So that will be going to trial in front of a judge, Lewis Kaplan, who I've been in front of many times. He's a tough judge. He's a smart judge. He does not countenance fools. So that will be interesting. Happens next month. And we will be covering it. Thank you, Ellie Honing. Appreciate it. There's a lot there. We'll be on top of all of it. Meantime, an emergency takeover of a huge bank this weekend. How it happened, what it means, how it will impact markets around the world. That is all ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Just a stunning bank takeover this weekend. Switzerland's biggest bank, UBS, has agreed to buy its troubled rival Credit Suisse in an emergency deal that has rattled markets. European markets opened slightly lower mid fears for the overall banking sector. In the opening minute, shares of Credit Suisse tumbled as much as 62%. UBS shares were down 8%. UBS is Switzerland's largest bank now. It agreed to buy Credit Suisse to try to ease the financial panic triggered by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. This is the first rescue of a global bank since the financial crisis of 2008. Credit Suisse had been losing the trust of investors and customers for years. Authorities were very worried about the fallout if it failed. 
And this also comes as the New York Times has some fascinating new reporting on Silicon Valley Bank. Quote, SVB's risky practices were on the Federal Reserve's radar for more than a year. An awareness that proved insufficient to stop the bank's demise, the Fed repeatedly warned the bank that it had problems. Joining us now is a reporter behind that reporting, Federal Reserve and Economy reporter for The New York Times, Gina Smilik. Also, our CNN business editor at large, Richard Quest. Richard, let me just begin with you. You're joining us from Tokyo, but you know European banks better than almost anyone. Can you believe that this happened to Credit Suisse, this fire sale, and then just completely overriding any say of shareholders, the Swiss government stepping in here and saying this must happen? It's stunning. It is stunning, but Credit Suisse was in pretty awful shape to begin with. It was limping along. And you know that old saying from Warren Buffett, when the tide goes out, Mm -hmm. you see who's swimming naked? Well, Mm -hmm. the tide went out very fast indeed, and there was nowhere else for Credit Suisse to go. When you look at this particular deal, it's a shotgun marriage, to be sure, but there's some very odd intricacies, particularly relating to bondholders who've also been wiped out. And the feeling is that this itself could cause more turbulence when New York opens in just a few hours from now. But for the moment, Poppy, they had no choice. Credit Suisse was going down, and as a systemically important bank, they couldn't allow it to take anybody else with it. Richard, how do you think, though, this is different than the global financial crisis in 2008? Because Credit Suisse had been plagued by problems, a lot of mismanagement, for years. Firstly, the bigger banks, the main banks, are much better capitalised. They've got tier tier three, Basel three credit and reserves and assets way beyond what's necessary. And the second reason, the regulators themselves. They wouldn't have another Lehman moment. Mm -hmm. They are well aware now of the contagion risk and would move in extreme... Well, they have moved in fast. Signature, um, SVB, Credit Suisse. The radar is like this at the moment because, Poppy, what this has shown on the downside is that there are banks potentially in trouble. And so the regulators are now on notice. We will move fast Mm -hmm. to deal with any crisis, even before it gets going. You're so right about that famous Warren Buffett quote, when the tide goes out, you basically see who's naked, you see who's most at risk. Um, Gina, let me bring you in here, because what's fascinating is that although the problems at Credit Suisse are so different than what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, the collapse of those banks is really what, what accelerated this or made this sort of a vortex that Credit Suisse just collapsed into. I was fascinated by your reporting over the weekend about how many times the Fed, the San Francisco Federal Reserve, which has purview over SVB, warned them six citations over the last year that they had, quote, matters requiring attention. And, and the SEC knew that there was no interest rate hedge. So why did nothing happen? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. And I think kind of the key question in this episode is, you know, the Fed had started giving the, the this bank warnings years earlier. It had given them a range of warnings over the year before its crash. And a lot of those warnings were specifically about the problems that we saw really bring down Silicon Valley Bank. They were telling the bank 
the bank's executives that their risk management controls were inadequate, that they were exposed to big interest rate moves, that a lot of the problems that we saw ultimately crash the bank could, you know, someday crash the bank. And I think the question is, why didn't executives do anything about it? Was it that the Fed wasn't enforcing this aggressively enough? Was it that they just, you know, completely dropped the ball and just refused? And I don't think we know the answers to those questions yet. What, is there any responsibility uh, from the San Francisco Fed, from the Federal Reserve uh, net large, to warn people? Or is it just private communication between those entities and the bank saying, you've got real issues here, you need to address them? Because from your reporting, my takeaway was... And this is a quote, the bank did not fix its vulnerabilities. But did anyone know, any customers, any depositors know that? I think this is going to be a huge area for inquiry going forward because traditionally the way it's done is that these issues are kept very private. Supervisory matters are kept really under strict lock and key. But I think there are a lot of questions about why weren't these issues escalated? Was it a failure at the San Francisco Fed? Was it a failure at the Federal Reserve's board in Washington? And, you know, is there any sort of recourse in a world where something like this could just fly under the radar for more than a year and a half? And so I think that we don't know the answers to that. I think we're going to see a lot of pressure coming from Congress. And we're already seeing some of that to get answers and some sort of solution going forward. Yeah, And if the bank doesn't act on these repeated warnings, is there a right to know Uh, for depositors? Richard, what do you think? Final final thought. I think it's very difficult. You have a right to know. But at the same time, if you start promulgating notices that this or that bank is deficient in its regulatory schemes, I mean, all banks at some point in time have a problem in some nature. Mm -hmm. How is the ordinary depositor to know what's serious and what's not? And the one thing we've learned from SVB and Signature is that today's bank run does not involve going and standing outside and knocking on the door. Today's bank run involves taking your phone out and taking your money somewhere else. And that means it's faster, more brutal and more destructive. As Patrick McHenry said last week, the first Twitter-fueled bank run that we saw play out. Uh, Richard Quest in Tokyo, thank you. Gina Smilek, thank you. Great reporting as well. The... Only passengers on planes who don't have to buckle up, that's babies sitting on their parents' laps. Why flight attendants want to change that, that's straight ahead. So this morning, flight attendants are calling for a ban on lap babies. They've got nothing against babies, but after the recent cases of severe turbulence, they say that they're afraid for children's safety. Right now, kids under two can fly free on their parents' laps. Let's head to CNN's Pete Montine. He joins us now. Good morning to you, Pete. What is this response? What has the response been to this proposal? Well, you know, flight attendants have been calling for this for something like 30 years now, Don. But right now, the FAA only strongly discourages parents putting babies on their lap. They say every child deserves to be strapped in. And that is something echoed by flight attendants. They really want this to change immediately, especially considering these turbulence incidents we have seen lately. On that Hawaiian Airlines flight that went through turbulence back in December, 36 people were injured. Among the injured, a 14-month old baby. Think about this. If you experience 10 G's in an aircraft accident, 10 times the force of gravity, a 20-pound, 12-month-old infant might weigh something like 200 pounds. This just came up again in that FAA safety summit last week where NTSB chair Jennifer Hamadi said, this is something like 
two dozen recommendations out there right now to make these turbulent incidents less severe, strapping in babies, making sure that all of them deserve a seat. Listen. All 25 turbulence recommendations remain open. Addressing these and so many other issues is how we make our skies safer today. The Association of Flight Attendants says it is past time to mandate this protection for our youngest passengers. We should do better to protect our children. One injury or death of a child is too many. Think about this. You're required to put your laptop away during takeoff and landing and at certain times in a flight. A baby should not be on your lap, flight attendants and safety advocates say. Don, Poppy. But how would it work? I mean, some babies are traveling so small they can't even hold their, their head up yet. Yeah, you know, the recommendation by the NTA, or by the FAA, rather, is that if you can, you should put a baby in a car seat. You know, I've been flying an airplane since right. I was two weeks old. Uh, my, both of my late parents were pilots, and they strapped me in. I was in the back seat of a Piper Lance, a six-seat airplane. So, you know, it's possible. You can do it. It just depends sometimes on the airline's uh, policy as well. But they just want this to be an FAA requirement. And as this is going right now, we're going through FAA reauthorization. That's how the FAA gets its money from Congress. And this could be slipped in as part of that requirement, as part of that uh, reauthorization uh, process to give uh, the FAA money. So uh, this could happen now. We'll see if uh, Congress takes any action there. And then there's the payment issue. We were just talking about that. A lot of parents obviously don't want to pay for a seat for their infant. We'll see. Thanks, Pete. You may possibly have a thing where they strap the baby. You know, you strap the baby to you. And if you're uh, oh, holding it, yeah, like something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah that's, a good, that, that's a good idea. Yeah. But also I've seen people with the car seats and you turn them around backwards and then you put the, you buckle in the car seat. But that means you have to buy another seat <clears> and it's no longer free yeah. for the baby. Yeah. You got to pay yeah. for the other yeah. seat. Yeah. Okay, also, we all know Adam Sandler from his work on Saturday Night Live, his comedy classics like The Waterboy and Happy Gilmore. There is no way that you could have been as bad at hockey as you are at golf. All right, let's go. You like that, old man? You want a piece of me? I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing. Of course, everyone watched that. There are also his blockbusters, Grown Ups, Big Daddy, streaming hits like Murder Mystery. Well, last night, Adam Sandler, who is better known as the Sandman, received some major recognition for his prolific career that has stretched over three decades. He was awarded the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. I was lucky enough to be there for all of the laughs and the many tributes to Sandler. You're going to be able to watch the whole thing yourself right here on Sunday on CNN next Sunday at 8 p.m. During the ceremony, many of Adam Sandler's longest friends paid tribute to his trademark sense of humor. Hello, my name is Adam Sandler. (laughs) And I am the 2023 Mark Twain Humor Prize Award recipient for greatness in American funny and bringing the thunderous belly laugh to the sweet people of planet Earth. Can I get a hell yeah? My first thought, of course, when they told me I was getting this (laughs) prestigious Mark Twain honor was, of course, wow, is Twain going to be there? Uh, No, said the Kennedy Center people, to which I replied, makes sense. I love it when you scream shit at me off camera, like funny things to say, and I just try and say them like you. 
and then when I hear you laugh at the funny thing you told me to say, <laughs> I'm in heaven. I knew that we were cinematic soulmates, like Hepburn and Tracy. You're making a terrible, terrible mistake. Good God in heaven, Kennedy Center. What have you done? No award has screwed up this badly since a MacArthur Genius Grant was given to Vin Diesel. Seriously, people have not been this shocked since I won a Latin Grammy. <laughs> How was it? it? So good. And it was so, I mean, one of the biggest jokes was that of all the people Adam Sandler employs, because he puts all of his friends in his movies, yeah. Rob Schneider, Steve Buscemi, all of these, all of them, they were so funny watching them. It was really great to be there. Oh, I love that. Must be nice. You must be exhausted. I am, but it, you know what was really lovely is he really, you know, his, you saw his wife sitting there. She was in the pink suit. Yeah. She looked amazing. His two daughters were also there, and he talked about, and his mom was there. You can see the whole CNN crew was there, Jake, Dana, Wolf, and Abby, and uh, Phil Mattingly. Um, and obviously our big bosses. <laughs> but um, it was just funny to see him talk about how his family always built him up and gave him this confidence that even though he wasn't the best, his mom and his dad made him feel the best, his wife and his daughters made him feel the best, his friends, and it helped kind of like spark this career. Yeah. It's good. We often learn through comedy, right? Yeah. The most important things. Yeah. In some way, it's just like this, yeah. you know, it, it penetrates rather than bounces off. Most times, most times. Yeah. And everyone else can also watch the entire ceremony. It's going to air this Sunday on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern. I promise you, you don't want to miss it. Can't wait to see it. Okay, Republicans are responding this morning to former President Trump's calls for protests. If he is indeed indicted this week, former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger is here to talk about it all next. I don't think people should protest this, no. And I, I think President Trump, if you talk to him, he doesn't believe that either. We want calmness. Okay, so that was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy objecting to Donald Trump's calls for protests around his potential indictment in New York. On Saturday, Trump urged supporters to protest and take our nation back. That's quote, after claiming that the Manhattan DA's office will be arresting him tomorrow, Tuesday. So the DA has not announced any decision, but... As we have reported, their investigation into the Stormy Daniels hush money payments is nearing an end. So joining us now, Adam Kinzinger, CNN senior political commentator and the former Republican congressman from Illinois. Good morning, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate morning. you joining us. So the last time the president called for protest, we know what happened. That was on January 6th. Um, you heard what everyone has been saying about this. Can I, I, want, can I play something before I get your response? This is Trump's uh, lawyer, Alina Haba, responding to the protest uh, of Trump's arrest as well. Here it is. Let's see if they arrest him, but I'll tell you what. If they choose to do so for a misdemeanor, which frankly he didn't even do, it is going to cause mayhem, Paula. I mean, it's just a very scary time in our country. If this is what we're doing in this country, you better secure the premises because it's dangerous. You know, people are going to get upset. She was speaking to our very own Paula Reed here on CNN this weekend. So what do you make of all this? You got Kevin McCarthy saying one thing. You have Alina Haba saying another. Well, I mean, we'll see how this goes. I don't think there's many people that truly believe that the president is, you know, likely innocent of this. But regardless... When you start calling, I mean, we saw what happened on January 6th, but, you know, the couple of weeks leading up to January 6th, I knew there would be violence because of some like the equivalent of what I'm seeing on social media today. I mean, 
people out there saying things like we're going to create a moat around Mar-a-Lago. They're not going to be able to get him. You know, whether this happens or not, and I pray to God that it doesn't turn violent or a standoff like this, it is very dangerous rhetoric. The speaker is right to say, you know, to try to call for calm in this moment. But there are a lot of his colleagues that aren't quite doing the exact same thing. Or they may say, hey, don't protest because it's all going to be feds out there. But boy, your country is being stolen. If you convince a significant number of this country that everything has been stolen and now the deep state's coming after their hero, they're going to they're gonna do something. And it's a pretty frightening endeavor, a pretty frightening thought that they've been so misled. And Adam, what about the, uh, the idea that Congress or that Speaker McCarthy is saying that there are going to be maybe investigations into this? He said he's directing relevant committees to immediately investigate if federal funds are being used to subvert our democracy by interfering in elections with pol politically motivated prosecutions. What can he actually investigate here? Do you think he's actually going to conduct investigations into this? Well, I mean, he can investigate anything. This is a state issue, so I don't, you know, obviously there's a federal investigation. This th this has a very chilling effect. This is a concern to me because when now you have Congress stepping in and saying, in essence, chilling who you can look at, uh, who you can investigate. Boy, yeah, we may not have, you know, authority over you, but we're going to put everything out there in the public so that now any low-level prosecutor who goes after a Republican or a friend of a Republican now has to worry about security or having themselves named on a different news network or on the Internet. I mean, you know, the, the speaker has put together the quote-unquote weaponization of government committee. If, if it was true to its name, it would be investigating his own comments at this moment, of course, that's not going to be the case. I do wonder what you think about... Uh warnings, essentially, from one Republican and one Democrat over this. Peter Meyer, a uh, former congressman, um, said this, quote, this indictment is a billion-dollar gift in kind from Democrats to Trump's, uh, to Trump's 24 campaign, assuming there is an indictment. We don't know yet. But then I thought this comment from Democratic Senator Mark Kelly to Jake yesterday morning was really interesting. Let's listen. You know, I would hope that if they brought charges that they have a, a, a strong case um, because this is, as you said, it's unprecedented. And, you know, there's certainly, you know, risks involved here. Um, but again, nobody in our nation is or should be above the law. Right. No one is or should be above the law. The law is the law, right? And will they indict? We'll see. But just politically, I think they're both pointing to real risks for Democrats and how this could be a political boon to the former president. I wonder what you think. Well, I certainly agree. I actually think, and I've said from the beginning, I think this is going to secure Donald Trump's stature within kind of the base GOP voter, which is, which to me is actually really sad because these are people that profess Christ as their savior that are now going to go out and defend a man that, you know, potentially or is accused of paying off, uh, you know, a uh, porn star, it's, you know, to protect information about him. And then he lied to people about it. But I do think it's a huge risk. I think if any, you know, if there was a preference, probably if there was, you know, it would be like the federal case would come first or Georgia would come first. But that's not how that's not how the law works. The law works when you culminate an investigation and you get an indictment through a grand jury. We don't know what that indictment's going to read. I would caution my Republican friends to, you know, wait until you see this indictment um, if it in fact it comes. But, uh, yeah, there's a huge political risk, no doubt. This is so unprecedented that mm -hmm. uh, this is all uncharted territory. Certainly. What will this week look like and what will it look like going into the future? Thank you very much, Adam. Appreciate it.
We are just a little bit more than an hour away from this very high stakes meeting between Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin. She is in Moscow now. They will be sitting down face to face. What will it bring? White House, the White House's John Kirby is standing by to discuss. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Moments ago, Chinese President Xi Jinping, as you can see here, landing in Moscow for his face-to-face meeting with President Putin. On the agenda, obviously, Ukraine. She says that he believes China is actively promoting peace talks, while Putin, who was in the Russian-occupied Ukrainian city of Mariupol over the weekend, says he welcomes China's, quote, readiness to make a meaningful contribution to the settlement of the crisis. The White House's John Kirby joins us now. Good morning, John. Are you expecting any tangible agreements to come out of this summit with Putin and Xi? Difficult to know, Caitlin. Uh, obviously, we're not part of these discussions, so uh, we'll see what these two leaders uh, actually come out and say at the end of this. I guess it's going to be a couple of days here of, uh, of their meeting and that agenda, so we'll see. Uh, but as you know, we've, we've been very, very uh, public about any concerns uh, about some sort of a ceasefire announcement right now. We all want to see peace. We all want to see this war end. It could end today if Mr. Putin did the right thing. But a ceasefire called right now would basically just ratify Russia's conquest and give Mr. Putin more time to re-equip and uh, retrain and, uh, and restart operations at a time and a place of his choosing. So if they call for a ceasefire, you believe Ukraine should and will reject that? Yes, we do, and we would uh, reject it as well. We think that that's an unacceptable outcome right now. Uh, Obviously, we want the fighting to stop. We want the war to be over. And as I said, it could end today if Mr. Putin would do the right thing. But to call for a ceasefire right now basically ratifies what they've been able to grab inside Ukraine and gives them time and space uh, to prepare for future operations, and that's just not going to be acceptable. John, do you think this meeting could be a venue where they announce that China may start providing weapons to Ukraine or to Russia to use in Ukraine? We don't believe it's in China's best interest to do that. And we, we can't... Uh we, we can't envision how they would think that it's in, in their best interest to help Mr. Putin continue to slaughter more innocent Ukrainians. So we don't want to see that. Again, we'll, we'll see what these leaders come out with and uh, what they say at the end of these uh, discussions. Uh, we're going to watch this very, very closely. Again, we have communicated privately to the Chinese. We've certainly communicated it publicly uh, that that would not be an outcome that's to the betterment, not only of China's and their interests, but certainly to the Ukrainian people and to the whole idea of peace. What does it say to you that after the International Criminal Court issued that arrest warrant for Putin, that A, she still showed up in Russia, clearly did not deter that visit, but also you saw Putin over the weekend in Mariupol in all of these other cities? I think you have to, to your first question, I think you got to keep this relationship in some sort of context here. Uh, These are two nations who chafe uh, and bristle at the idea of U.S. leadership or U.S. influence around the world. Uh, They don't they don't like uh, playing by the rules uh, that the world order has in place uh, and they want to challenge U.S. leadership. This is a marriage of convenience, not of affection. These are two countries that don't have uh, a heck of a whole lot of trust between one another, uh, but they find common cause in pushing back on the West and pushing back on 
uh, American leadership. So again, we'll see what they decide to do uh, when they come out with this. Now, as for Mr. Putin's visit to Mariupol, uh, Mariupol uh, is far away from uh, the front lines of the fighting in the south and in the east. Uh, it was a convenient uh, excuse for him uh, to go in advance of Xi's visit to show that he's still the commander in chief, that he's still in charge, and that his military still has uh, uh, occupied territory inside Ukraine. Uh, there's no doubt uh, that uh, that he could see for himself, or we would hope that he would see for himself, how badly his military is actually doing, where the fighting is actually occurring, and most of that is right up now in the in the Donbass near a town called Bakhmut. The White House wanted President Xi to also speak with President Zelensky to get the Ukrainian perspective yeah. in this. Any indication that's going to happen? We haven't seen any confirmation of it. Obviously, President Xi would be the one to announce that if he's going to do it. But we absolutely have been suggesting it for quite some time. And we'd love to see that happen. I mean, if you're going to go to Moscow and you're going to sit down for three days with President Putin and you're going to get his perspective on a war that he started and that he could finish today, you ought to pick up the phone at the very least and talk to President Zelensky and get the Ukrainian perspective here. What we've been saying from the very beginning, uh, if this comes down to some kind of negotiated settlement of some sort in some place at some time, it's got to be nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So Ukraine has got to be central to those discussions. Their perspectives have to be heard uh, and respected. So we absolutely want President Xi to reach out and, and get a little bit of the views and perspective uh, of Ukraine here. It's been about a week since President Biden said he was going to speak to President Xi soon. Is that call been scheduled yet, John? It hasn't been scheduled, Caitlin, but the president uh, very much wants to have another conversation with President Xi. It's really important that we keep these lines of communication open between the United States and China, the most consequential bilateral relationship in the world. president wants to keep those lines open. We'll do that. And he'll have a call with President Xi at the appropriate time. What is the appropriate time? Because he said back in mid-February, after the U.S. downed that surveillance balloon, that he would speak to him soon. He said last week he'd speak to him soon. So as the U.S. tried to schedule the call and the Chinese have been unwilling, or what's going on here? No, there's, there's been no logistics. There's been no, uh, there's been no setting it up. Uh, we, uh, we maintain that we're going to have a, a, another discussion with President Xi. The president wants to do that, wants to keep those lines open. And at the appropriate time, we'll reach out and, uh, and we'll see if we can get a call on the schedule. These are two men that also know each other for quite some time when they were both vice presidents of their respective countries. They had a good meeting in Bali, a good discussion. Uh, we'd like to continue that discussion. We'd like to uh, make sure that this bilateral relationship is serving not only the best interests of the American people, uh, but also the, the world. And the, this, this is a relationship that needs to be handled in a responsible, mature way. We want to get back to that, but we're just going to have to wait and, uh, and do that at the right time. Speaking of open lines of communication, we're seeing North Korea continue to fire off projectiles. Is it still accurate yeah. to say there's been no contact between the Biden administration and North Korea? Not for lack of trying and not for lack of interest, Caitlin. We, we maintain that we would still, uh, without precondition, uh, be willing to sit down and, uh, with, with the North Korean regime and try to find a, a diplomatic way uh, to reduce the nuclear tensions on the peninsula and to see the verifiable denuclearization uh, of, uh, of North Korea. But they have yet to show any interest in that whatsoever, any communication whatsoever. Quite the contrary, as you rightly noted, no, they're firing off ballistic missiles now here, largely in a reaction to U.S. and uh, ROK, uh, Republic of Korea, exercises that we're conducting right now. In fact, I think those exercises are wrapping up. All right, John Kirby, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, you bet. We want to turn now to the possible criminal indictment hanging over the former president, Donald Trump. He says that he expects to be arrested as soon as tomorrow in the Manhattan 
Manhattan District Attorney's probe of hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. And today, Trump's legal team is making a last-minute push to discredit his longtime fixer and star witness, Michael Cohen. Cohen's former lawyer is set to testify before the grand jury. We're told that he came forward and offered evidence to contradict Cohen's claims. Senior, senior legal affairs uh, correspondent Paula Reed joins us now. Good morning to you, morning. Paula. Thank you so much. What are we expecting today? So this is going to be interesting because this is a witness that the Trump team requested the grand jury hear from. Now, make no mistake, prosecutors are in charge of the grand jury. They didn't have to grant this request, but from an optics perspective, they knew they really had to. And the Trump team wants this former, this attorney, a former attorney of Michael Cohen's, his name is Rob Costello. He represents a lot of Trump allies, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon. He's going to go in there and speak to Cohen's credibility. And that's significant in this investigation because, of course, Cohen is a star witness here. Now, it is possible that Cohen could also be called to rebut his testimony. We know he will also be there at the at the courthouse today. So he could potentially be called as a rebuttal witness, but we'll see if the grand jury wants to hear from him as well. Now, Costello told me a few moments ago he's handed over hundreds of documents to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, hundreds of emails about his former representation of Cohen and some contemporaneous memos that he made of key events during the time he was representing Cohen. And Cohen, of course, waived attorney-client privilege, which Costello says is really unusual. The hope from the Trump team here is that Costello will corroborate Michael Cohen's earlier um, yes. reflections on the hush money payment, that it was all him and only him. Exactly. There's been an evolution in the narrative of exactly yes. what happened here. And of course, uh, several years ago, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations and other crimes. But he's always insisted more recently that he did all of this at the direction of Donald Trump. So there are absolutely issues with his credibility. He does not like it when that is pointed out. So this is kind of a provocative move mm -hmm. on the Trump team's mm -hmm. part. You spoke to a Trump attorney yesterday uh, talking about what this is going to look like. What'd she tell you? Yeah, so I talked to one of his attorneys, Alina Haba. She does not represent him in the Manhattan DA's investigation, but she represents him in other matters. And, and I asked for someone to come out and just talk about his truth social posts. Yeah. Uh, and so I really tried to drill down on this call for protest. I mean, he, we know from our reporting, he's speculating about an arrest tomorrow. And I asked her, is he speculating about an arrest to incite political violence by calling people to protest and take back the country? Here's what she said. It is going to cause mayhem, Paula. I mean, it's just a very scary time in our country. If this is what we're doing in this country, you better secure the premises because it's dangerous. You know, people are going to get upset. It was an opportunity there to tamp down the rhetoric. Uh, but clearly the Trump team, as we know, our colleagues are reporting, they believe that an indictment could help him politically. So they're clearly ramping up the rhetoric around any potential indictment. Yeah, we're still waiting to see what this even looks like. If it even happens, it happens this week, yeah, we don't totally. know. We should note, Trump said, and as we were talking about earlier, Trump said on Saturday he's going to be arrested tomorrow. He's going to be indicted. He's not going to just be, like, arrested at Mar-a-Lago. And we actually don't know when that's going to happen. We were told by Trump's team they, it wasn't, they never actually got a heads up from the DA's office. That's not based You're on anything. You're exactly right. His own team came out and publicly said, look, we haven't been informed yeah. of anything. And we know from our reporting there is nothing expected tomorrow. But, again, we don't know what's going to happen, and we continue to report it out. Yeah. Yeah. And they're still seeing witnesses, yeah. as you have just reported, right? From the Trump yeah. team. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. well, how they got the Tuesday, Tuesday yeah. timing, it appears speculative. And that's why we asked the lawyer, is he speculating? 
to fundraise and incite political violence. And we didn't yeah. quite get an answer. And of course, blaming so. it all on saying the leaks coming from the office, but there's no indication or evidence of that at all. That's why he's saying he's going to be arrested. Yeah, no, it's just According his own to team. him, yeah. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> a lot of accusations of yeah. leaks from all sides. We know different people leak, but in this case, he, he his own team says he was going off press reports, yeah. and he's clearly speculating. Yeah. yeah. Paula. Paula, thank you very much. Uh, Don, you have new reporting. This is on the second case involving Trump. It's a second case. This is out of Fulton County, Georgia, and the charges that he might face there. And they're not specifically naming him. But uh, you have to read into what the sources are saying and exactly what the charges are. I spoke with a source with knowledge of the investigation. And here's what they say. That source says prosecutors are thinking about bringing racketeering and conspiracy charges in connection with Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. They have been looking at phone calls, looking at emails, texts, documents, testimony from inside and outside the state. Why is this important? Because the source says it underscores the idea that the push for Trump was not just an organic grassroots effort inside of the state. Now, remember, investigators have at least three recordings of the former president pressuring Georgia officials, including this one. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That phone call is as shocking as the first time you heard it. Every time you hear it, it's just as shocking. So why the potential racketeering charges? They allow prosecutors to bring charges against multiple defendants. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis could use the law to try to make the case that Trump and his allies were part of a criminal enterprise. And Willis likes using RICO charges, which were originally designed to take down the mafia. This is what she said about it over the summer. This is in an unrelated case. Listen to this. And the reason that I am a fan of RICO is I think jurors are very, very intelligent. They want to know what happened. They want to make an accurate decision about someone's life. And so RICO is a tool that allows a prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story. We should say, of course, that Trump denies any criminal wrongdoing, claims that Willis is um, her investigation is politically biased. My source says that the D.A. could make decisions on the charges this spring, so expect them soon, first day of spring today. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution recently spoke to five grand jurors anonymously. One of them said, and I quote here, a lot's going to come out sooner or later, and it's going to be massive. It is going to be massive. So you have all of this playing out as uh, the DA in Manhattan is gearing up to do whatever he's going to do or not going to do. Trump out there, as your reporting says, saying that he's going to be arrested on Tuesday. But then the one that most people believe um, that he faces the biggest threat would be the one in Georgia. It has the biggest um, legal ramifications for him. Yeah, he's facing so many investigations. It is important to keep that in mind. This is the most public one right now. It's at the yeah. forefront, what ha- what's happening here in Manhattan. But there are many others behind the scenes. Yeah, so. many others. And we'll be following all of them. We'll see what happens this week in Manhattan, if anything. But you heard the DA's office says they are ready for it. Law enforcement said they're ready for any possible unrest if that does happen. Well, and speaking of that, you know, we have this video that we just got moments ago. This is the New York Police Department. They're installing security cameras on light post. That is outside the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. So, for perspective on this, as what we are seeing here with these officers right now, as they are preparing for what could potentially happen this week, I want to bring in Jonah Goldberg, 
CNN political commentator and co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, and David Axelrod, our CNN senior political commentator and host of The Axe Files. Jonah, I mean, you're watching this video that we have right here of New York, the New York Police Department. They are putting cameras on light poles outside the courthouse in anticipation of what could happen. What do you think Republicans should be saying publicly about how the response should happen if Trump is actually indicted this week? Well, it's, look, I actually think it's a fine line for them to try and walk here, because on the one hand, I think they should be much more vocal, much more outspoken about saying there's no need for violence. There's no need to, to take the law into your own hands. While at the same time, I think it's perfectly legitimate to uh, criticize this, uh, you know, the reportedly um, the, re- the indictment that is reportedly coming out of, of, of Bragg's office, because I do think it is a deeply flawed thing. Um but just taking a step back, you know, listening to Adam Kinzinger earlier and, and, and all the commentary and reporting you've had so far, I think one of the things people need to keep in mind is that, you know, Donald Trump broke a lot of norms, he broke a lot of rules. He tested the system. He violated the good faith understanding of how government and public officials are supposed to work. And that elicited from a lot of people the same response back. And now we are in this sort of situation where people say, well, he breaks the rules so we can break the rules to go get him. And I think that is the kind of banana republic logic that we're seeing unfolding, where Trump is now basically winking a nod saying, you're allowed to go, you know, mob the courthouse. Um, He's not going to say it outright, but that's the, the subtext of it. And the response to that is going to be a sort of more lawless thing as well. It is a really dysfunctional dynamic that we're in. David, what do you think as you're watching this? Look, first of all, I don't know. I don't want to comment too deeply on a, a, a case. Where we don't know exactly what the district attorney is going to do. I suspect that of all the investigations that are going on about Donald Trump, that he uh, probably would want this one to go first because it's the weakest Uh uh, just on the on the facts, I don't know that the American people are as deeply concerned about what he did with four two uh, Stormy Daniels uh, and around that uh, than some of the other charges, like the one down in Georgia. And he, what he really wants to do is color this as as a series of political prosecutions. I will say this: if I were his lawyers. And I were uh, defending against the investigation about the insurrection. I would not be thrilled about the email that he sent out or the te- or the, the uh, post that he made over the weekend uh, suggesting that people get out in the streets and take the country back, uh, because that is part of the pattern that they are investigating in the other case. And my guess is they're saying, oh, this is this only supports uh, what what we believe happened uh, back on January 6th. Uh, so I don't think he helped himself there. But what he did do was send a dog whistle to Republican politicians, and some of them reacted in Pavlovian fashion, including the Speaker of the House. And this is what Trump ultimately wants. He wants all these cases to be cast as political prosecutions, and he wants Republicans to uh, line up behind him. Well, and Jonah, to that point, we did hear from people like the former vice president, Mike Pence, who has been critical of Trump in recent weeks, as we've talked about. But, you know, he said this feels like a politically charged prosecution. You know what I noticed over the weekend is we didn't hear from people like Governor DeSantis, Nikki Haley. They, they've decided not to weigh in. It's interesting to see who is commenting among the potential 2024 candidates and who isn't. 
No, I agree. It's a it's a difficult um, it's 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 a difficult not to cut on this thing if you're another Republican candidate because on the one side you don't want to get crosswise with an angry base, even though I think the base is sort of crazy to be as angry as it is about some things. Um, while at the same time, you don't want to lend Aiden Covered and take all your your direction from the guy you're running against in a Republican primary. I do think it is remarkable as somebody who actually thought that like what Bill Clinton did. Uh, you know, uh, with Monica Lewinsky was a bad thing. You don't see anybody saying why I never, I cannot believe you would even insinuate that Donald Trump would have anything to do with a porn star, right? I mean, it is all this sort of kabuki theater about process and not giving the other side a win and and we're being treated unfairly. Whereas, you know, conservatives are supposed to actually care about like things like adultery and character and that's all gone out the window. Yeah, I feel like we're, we're very far past that. The shock value of that has, has gone away, given since we learned about it. David, final word to you, though, on just the how unprecedented this is. The fact that we are even talking about a former president being indicted, regardless of what you know legal experts think of the strength of the case, the idea that we could actually see him going and being taken in, having to present himself, being fingerprinted, it's remarkable. Yeah, no, it's remarkable and it's sad, uh, but it's consistent with what we've seen over the, over these years. As Jonah mentioned, I mean, Donald Trump has serially sundered rules, laws, uh, norms and institutions uh, since he came down that escalator. And uh, this is the uh, predictable result uh, of that. And, you know, the, the danger is that. Uh, that he, the institution that he's now going to sunder or continue to sunder is our legal system and try and cast everything that holds him accountable for his actions, not just on this case, but on all the others that go m- much more to the operations of government and, and democracy, that he's going to cast them all as politically motivated. And large numbers of Americans in his base are going to accept and embrace that. And a number, a large number of Republican politicians are going to embrace that. That's terrible for our country. That's, and, and, uh, uh, that is the big danger here uh, to me, is that somehow he turns this uh, in a political way to his advantage and uh, to the great detriment of our democracy. Yeah. Only time will tell. We'll see whether it is politically advantageous. Jonah Goldberg, David Axelrod, thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good to be with you. It is interesting, Caitlin. You were watching the, um, the NYPD put up those cameras downtown in front of the courthouse. And someone who has knowledge of these events said the Manhattan DA must use every tool in his arsenal to control the criminal defendant, including contempt, obstruction, interference or witness tampering, just like the federal prosecutors are using every tool within their arsenal to control Sam Bankman Freed. So they will have to treat him and whatever he's doing, just like any other defendant so or any other person who is uh being charged with a crime so that's going to be interesting to play out to watch yeah play out here see what it looks like yeah so this morning shares in credit suisse have plunged after it agreed to a takeover from rival swiss bank ubs what it could mean for your finances here at home more cnn this morning to come after the break historic deal made in an effort to ease the global banking crisis, Zurich-based banking giant UBS 
is buying Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion. This is a deal negotiated by the Swiss government. It's essentially a fire sale of Credit Suisse. And this morning, shares in Credit Suisse have plunged 62%. Shares UBS also lower by about 8% at the open there in Europe. The move comes as major financial institutions continue to grapple with the recent failures of two U.S. regional banks at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So let's bring in anchor and CNN chief business correspondent Christine Romans and CNN business reporter Matt Egan. Guys, thank you so much. This was stunning to follow all weekend. I saw the FT first reporting. I thought it was going to be just $2 billion and it ended up at $3 billion without any approval by the shareholders of Credit Suisse who just get wiped out. In yep. this. And this is this is a 167-year-old bank that, by the way, is one of just 30 banks in the world that are considered, you know, globally important. Their ties to every kind of economy and every kind of industry. So it's a really big deal to be bought by UBS. Essentially, it's a rescue purchase of this of this company with all kinds of backing from the Swiss National Bank and the Swiss government to make sure it goes through. It had its own problems, right? A lot of problems getting up to this point, but it is the current period of fragility and a lack of confidence in the banking system that kind of tipped it over the edge. It's so amazing because I feel like regulators really around the world, they're just going from like weakest link in the system to weakest link in the system, trying to put out fires right before it spreads. What's crazy though is that UBS, they didn't want to buy Credit Suisse, right? Credit Suisse has been a mess for years, but regulators basically forced UBS strongly persuaded them to do this. I mean, this would be like um, Roger Goodell trying to get uh, the New England Patriots to buy my beloved New York Jets because they just keep losing and it's bad for the league, right? And the Patriots say, sure, sure. And the Patriots say, sure, but you guys have to sweeten the deal because we don't want to lose money on it. That's kind of where we are. Why does this matter for anyone at home this morning? Stability is what we're searching for here, and that's why it matters. I mean, there's the opposite of confidence is fear, and we have a fundamentally strong banking system, way better today than it was in 2008. We've got all these backstops, but if you don't have confidence and you have fear in the bank system, then that starts to unravel you know, the groundwork. So they're just trying to get confidence back in the system. I talked to um, an economist today who used to run TARP, the troubled asset relief program, a bank bailout from you know, uh, 10, 12 years ago. She said this is going to take weeks or maybe even months to sort out. I mean, that's we're kind of in the early innings, I think, of finding that stable ground again in banking. One bit of good news that you reported over the weekend, Matt, is that these smaller and mid-sized U.S. banks actually saw a little bit of stabilization. So not so many outflows, not as many depositors pulling their cash out because they're freaked out. Right. And that is really important, you know, more important even than what the share prices are doing, which yeah. they've been on a roller coaster ride. But U.S. officials are really paying attention to the deposits because some of these banks, obviously Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank and others saw really big amounts of cash being taken out. And yeah. so a U.S. official over the weekend telling CNN that these withdrawals from banks, mm-hmm. from the small and midsize ones, um, have either slowed Good. or flattened out, or even some of them have reversed. And that, of course, is exactly what U.S. officials want to see. What about what central banks announced yesterday, which is basically a lot of central banks around the world coming together to do what? So this is usually every week there's this period, a window that opens for these liquidity dollar swaps, right? right? So make sure the dollars are in the system. They're opening that window every day now. So it just means... There are going to be more dollars available for, for all these banks to make sure that they have the money to meet the deposits. So it's just 
it's helping the liquidity of the system. It's a vote of confidence, but also showing that central banks, all those central banks are going to be mm-hmm. available to make sure that the plumbing is working in the banking system. You know, we've seen that, that facility that the Fed opened a lot of money has been borrowed, and we won't know who those banks are for some time for obvious reasons, right? Yeah. You don't want to know who is tapping the emergency, you know, the emergency supplies of, 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 of loans, but um, that's been used a lot. So there's a lot out there to shore up the system. And here's why it's so important to shore up the system, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about deposits in the bank, right? Because we know that's safe up to the $250,000 FDIC limit per bank, per borrower. It's really about what this does to the economy because... Yeah. More fear in the system means more expensive loans, right? Harder to get a mortgage, harder to get a car loan, more expensive small business loans. And all of that can slow down the economy. And the worry is that, you know, this banking crisis could be the spark for the next recession. Hopefully it doesn't happen. hope not. Matt Egan, Christy Mormon, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, also this morning, California bracing for even more flooding. The last thing anybody there wants to hear after they were slammed with no less than 12, yes, 12 catastrophic rainstorms. We are live on the ground. And Vladimir Putin making a surprise visit to Russian-occupied Mariupol, the same city where hundreds of Ukrainian civilians were killed as they sheltered inside a theater. One survivor saying Putin's visit is like a serial killer returning to the scene of a crime. Welcome back, everyone. This morning, storm-battered California bracing for the 13th atmospheric river of the season. The parade of storms has sparked floods and landslides, toppled trees and power lines, and stranded mountain residents in record-deep snow. Authorities now warning it could be a dire spring, especially if warm temperatures melt the snow quickly. CNN's Veronica Miracle live in the midst of it in Pajaro, California, near Monterey. Good morning to you. What kind of preparations are being taken? Well, Don, preparations hardly being taken in this community because this community hasn't even recovered from the last storm, Don. Uh, This whole area was covered in floodwaters just last week. You couldn't even navigate it by car. You had to take a boat. We had to ride with the uh, Monterey County Sheriff's Office just to even take a look at what was happening here. Those floodwaters have since receded, but the entire town is covered in mud and debris. And in fact, it is still a ghost town. You cannot get in if you are a resident. There are still blockades. And the only sign of life that you see, first responders, those who are helping to clean up some of the mud, and then those people who refuse to leave, the few who stayed behind. Now, this is impacting the community on every single level. Not only can they not get back into their homes and those areas that are contaminated with uh, mud and water and debris, but you take a look here. We're standing in a strawberry field. This is where so many people work. Uh, and I'm trying not to fall in this mud here, but it is covered in mud. You can see those leaves just brown from the mud here and people are not going to be able to and have not been able to come back to work so they can't get in their homes and they cannot come to work there is only a sliver of good news for this community who uh, for the thousands of people that have been impacted this 13th atmospheric river this next storm coming in it is expected to hit southern california harder than it is expected to hit northern california it still means moisture is coming to this area and so it delays the process of drying out, and there are still communities deeply impacted in Southern California. So this has been an incredibly difficult time for California. Don? Boy, certainly has. Thank you, Veronica Miracle. 
Okay, also this morning, former President Trump is leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in new polls on the 2024 race and what it might look like. It is actually mostly due to one key voting block. It might surprise you. Harry Anton is here to explain next. All right, former President Trump seeking to weaken Ron DeSantis ahead of his expected White House run. Not announced yet, but it is expected. The former president has been calling the Florida governor names when he is out speaking publicly, criticizing his past views on everything from Social Security to ethanol. Now polls suggest that DeSantis might have his work cut out for him, especially when it comes to one particular voting block among Republican voters. CNN's Harry Enten has been looking into the numbers you find that there is one group of voters that Trump has a, a pretty significant advantage over DeSantis with. Which group? Yeah, that, that's right, Caitlin. So this morning's number is 29. It's 29 points. So Trump lead in the primary over DeSantis is 29 points among GOP and GOP-leaning voters of color. That is non-white Republicans, where he has a significant lead, 29 points. And I want to compare white voters with voters of color on the GOP side. You see among white voters, right? Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are within the margin of error of each other, right? It's just a one-point advantage for Donald Trump. But again, look at this ballooning lead that Donald Trump has among voters of color. It's 29 points, so he's doing 28 points better among voters of color than he is among white voters. And, you know, I think there's this idea, you know, the Republican Party is much more white than the Democratic Party. But in fact, the GOP is becoming more diverse. So this is the share of GOP voters who are people of color. This year, right now, it's 18%. Back in 2016, when Trump first ran, it was just 13 percent. So Trump is doing better among a group of voters that is becoming a larger share of the Republican Party. Yeah, so this could be a pretty significant voting block if he does maintain their support or potentially grow it. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly what's going on here. And I think it kind of intersects with another sort of divide that we're seeing in the Republican Party, right? Which is, we were talking about this before in the break, you know, voters in the Republican Party are breaking along income lines. So voters making less than $50,000 a year, they favor Trump by 27 points. Voters making at least $50,000 a year, they in fact favored DeSantis by six points. And again, it's this intersection of everything going on, right? So 28% of white GOP voters make less than 50K, while 45% of GOP voters of color make less than 50K. So essentially, we, what we go, what's going on here is this populist message that Trump has is working particularly well with voters of color at this point. Yeah, and that's so interesting to see how that shapes DeSantis once he mm. formulates his own message when we see him officially into the race as he's expected to do. It's going to be a wild ride, Caitlin. Yeah, Harry, really interesting look. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, beating the odds, busting your bracket, but that's okay. Watch this. The 15th seed Princeton Tigers will continue their Cinderella run to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. The team's coach and one of the star players here live in studio next. Number 15 seed, the Princeton Tigers. It's never been sweeter if you're a Princeton fan than right now. Look at that. that. 15th seeded Princeton will continue its Cinderella run into the Sweet 16 round of March Madness. It is the first time the Tigers have gotten this deep into the tournament in almost six decades. And it comes after two major upsets. First against number two seed Arizona who had been a popular pick to win it all. 
Then Princeton dominated Missouri, a number seven seed. Now they will face Creighton, a number six seed on Friday with a trip to the Elite Eight on the line. Joining us now is Princeton's head coach, Mitch Henderson, and their March Madness star, Tosan Awoma. Guys, when I heard you were coming in studio, I was so <laughs> excited. We were all so excited because it's so great, Mitch, to be underestimated and then prove everyone wrong. And for you, this is like we all remember. I think we have the picture we can pull up, right? Back in 1996, you were a player for Princeton. You guys upset UCLA. You jumped for joy, and now you get to do it as a coach. I, That's you, by the way. I know. <laughs> I, um, how you doing? I mean, uh, how are you guys? We're, we're on cloud nine, and, you know, as the coach, you know, you, you want to separate yourself from being the player as often as possible. I am yeah. so glad we're getting rid of that photo around our, our gym. <laughs> it's time for some new photos, and we've got a lot of them, and uh, we're, really, we're really pleased. And I know it's Cinderella and brackets are busted. We're happy to be in that role, but this group really believes in themselves, and it's a national stage. One of the cool things about the tournament, as you guys know, is, you know, it's neutral court. And, and um, all these guys grow up watching the tournament and you believe. And the group has, it's, it's a very gritty and gutty group that also plays with a lot of savvy. And um, we're, we're not surprised that we're here. Gritty, gutty, and savvy. That's a good combination. Yeah. You're right in the middle of it. I mean, you, what do you, do you realize how big this is? Uh, I'm not sure I quite do, to be honest. Um, you know, obviously it feels amazing. Uh, I think when we finish playing, I think we'll, we'll probably appreciate it uh, for what it is. But right now we're, we're trying to stay on the moment a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously enjoying myself a, ma a massive amount as well. You're making it to the Sweet 16 first time since 1967, six decades, as we were noting. What, how do you coach at a time like this? What is your message to, to the team? Well, we, I think don't lose sight of what got you here. Uh, we were just fighting to make the tournament eight days ago. So it's been quick, and uh, we're pinching ourselves a bit. I also think that um, you have to tap into the little kid in you. You know, the, all of us wanted to be at this moment. These guys have earned the, the right to, to enjoy the process. And then um, the school, we, you know, Princeton has such incredible school spirit, so we wanted to tap into that. I thought that's a big part of the reason why we were successful in Sacramento. We, had a, we have an amazing fan base and alum base that mm – -hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't think anybody does the four-year undergraduate experience like Princeton. So there's real camaraderie there, and uh, we're going to have a lot of support going into Sweet 16. Can you talk about what inspires you to play? Because I know so much of it is your family. Not only your dad, who played in Nigeria, but you wear these pink shoes. I think we've got a picture for, for in honor of your mom. Yeah. Um, my parents, like you said, have been a huge influence on me. Um, now my family, my brother, too. Um, yeah, I, I, I tried to honor my mom, you know, every game with pink shoes with the, the number 20. That was uh, her birthday was March 20th. So, uh, you know, everything's kind of for her. Um, try to make her proud as best as I can. Um, and, and my dad, too. And, and yeah, kind of play for them. And, uh, you, you know, I've had other inspirations in my life, too. And I think it's just amazing to, to be able to, um, you know, perform on this stage, you know, for them. And, you know, hopefully have the same kind of effect on, on younger generations, um, whether back home in, in England or you know, obviously the Princeton community as well. So, um, you know, it's been amazing to, to, to play a part in inspiring younger generations. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's uh, basketball in many countries, but it's looked at as an American sport, right? And you're from England. You, you didn't start playing ball until you were 14? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What's up with that? And now here you are. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not huge in the UK, but, you know, it's growing. Um, it's growing. Everybody's getting behind the sport, I think, uh, 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 right now specifically. But... 
Yeah, it was, it was a lot of soccer for me growing up, uh, a lot of different sports, pretty much all but American sports. Um, but, you know, I'm glad I found basketball and, and, you know, here I am now. His nickname is slow-mo, but it's a good thing. Yeah. Is this right? Yeah, so I think the game slows down for him. Even I'm often urging him, like, can we go a little bit faster now? Uh, <laughs> but I think that um, maybe this is the football soccer influence on him, but um, the way he sees the game makes it, makes it easier for others to play faster. Um, he's such a gifted passer. I always say when, when he came to Princeton, it's like a brilliant blinding light from heaven. <gasps> oh, nice. When you beat Arizona, what was it like? Uh, surreal. Uh, yeah, surreal. I mean, we always had belief, but to actually go out and do it, you know, surreal. Uh, in front of the fans, amazing crowd, uh, amazing stage to play on. Um, yeah, you, you can't ask for much more. And when yeah. you beat Alabama, what's that going to be like? <laughs> <laughs> My dad's gonna be thrilled, but guys, congratulations. Thank you so much. So proud. I can't believe you made time to join us on set while you're in the middle of this. And thank you for this. Thank you. There are two more. I'll wear it. We love it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You guys are awesome. We wish you the best of luck. Unless you're playing Alabama. Good to see you. Good luck. Okay, also this morning, CNN is live on the ground in Moscow. Chinese President Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping has just touched down. He is about to meet with President Putin. First time since Russia invaded Ukraine. We're going to tell you the number one thing leaders in the West are watching for. That's next. So this morning, Chinese President Xi Jinping arriving in Moscow. Soon he will meet face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin. On the agenda, Ukraine, of course, she's saying that he is actively promoting peace talks. Joining us now from Taiwan, CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley. Will, hello. Um, what should we expect to see today in this meeting between Xi and Putin? Well, certainly on the surface, it's going to be quite a lavish affair. This is an official state visit going on for three days. And I bet Vladimir Putin is very happy to see Xi Jinping. I mean, this is his best friend in the world right now, considering, you know, the you know potential to be tried on war crimes charges, uh, you know, condemnation by the West, you know, growing allegations of, of just, you know, barbaric behavior with him at the helm. And yet you have the Chinese president showing up, talking about, you know, working with Putin to safeguard the international order, a journey of friendship, cooperation and peace. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it's it just really it's so thick. You know, you could slice it with a knife. Uh, and yet this is what, you know, the Russian public, the Chinese public, this is what they're being fed. And this and so this buildup of this this no limits partnership between these two. Again, you know, she continues just to really put so much uh, you know, of his, of his own credibility, really, in this relationship with Vladimir Putin. Now, the question that we need to, to see if it will be answered publicly or if it'll come out, you know, later is whether they talk about lethal weapons, mm-hmm. which Putin needs because his troops are running out of ammunition and other things. And will China be willing to give Russia the weapons that it would need uh, that could actually turn turn things around for them on the ground, potentially. This is the big concern. And also this Chinese peace plan that, that she is going there touting. Uh, basically, Ukraine says this plan needs to begin with a Russian withdrawal. But yeah. what China's calling for is for Russia to basically be given the land that they've already taken. Yeah, and notable, given that John Kirby said earlier, even if China does publicly propose a ceasefire once again, he, they, the U.S. believes Ukraine should reject it, and he said the U.S. will reject it as well. 
Yeah, it's it's th- these are two men, two strong men up against the West. And yeah. uh, with each visit, with each, you know, each side just digging in their heels, it's really uh, pretty troubling for a lot of people watching mm-hmm. the direction of, of, of these two polar opposites in the world right now. All right. Will Ripley in Taiwan for us this morning. Will, thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us. And we'll be tracking all the latest with this Putin-Xi meeting. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.